Good morning, fellowship. I am excited to be here once again with you. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Matt. I'm a pastoral resident here, which means that I am learning the ins and outs of pastoral leadership. I would also like to say that I have never played organized football, (laughs) just so you know. Um, Today, we're going to continue in our series on the way of wisdom. The last few weeks, we've been talking about this out of the book of Proverbs. We've talked about the way of wisdom in our work and the way of wisdom in um, self-control. And today, we're going to talk about the way of wisdom in our speech. So what I'd like to ask you to do is to stand with me as I read today's passage. We are in Proverbs chapter 12. We're starting in verse 17. It says, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. You you can be seated. When I was a kid, I watched a show called Unsolved Mysteries. Anybody in here familiar with the show Unsolved Mysteries? I loved watching that show when I was growing up, and not just because of the host and his iconic voice and the cadence in which he spoke, but I loved that show because of the true crime element to it, where they were solving mysteries, usually legal mysteries, sometimes missing persons mysteries, every once in a while a sort of maybe potentially supernatural mystery that's unexplained. But I love the ones where something had happened and they were looking for a suspect and they were trying to solve the case. And as I got older and Unsolved Mysteries went off the air and it was replaced by a slew of other shows like Dateline and other ones. And now it's grown even more to include podcasts where true crime podcasts are like this huge genre of podcasts. And I listen or I watch and we all listen and we watch because we want to see what happens at the end. We want to see if justice is going to be served. Are they going to find the bad guy? Are they going to bring him to justice? Is he going to be found guilty? And usually in these shows, that's exactly what happens. You watch for an hour, you listen for an hour, and it's it's tied up with a nice pretty bow, and there's some resolution at the end, and you feel like justice has been served. But in real life, it's not always that way. Sometimes they don't find the bad guy. Sometimes he doesn't go to trial. But sometimes, and maybe this is the worst possible outcome, is they find a guy, but they find the wrong guy. In 1982, there was a man by the name of Earl Washington. He lived in Culpeper, Virginia, and at that time, there was a particularly horrendous crime that was committed. I don't need to go into the details of it because it's not important for the illustration. But Earl Washington, about a year after this crime was committed, he was involved in another petty crime, and the police arrested him, and they, they picked him out as the guy who probably committed this gruesome crime. And so they brought him in for questioning, and one thing about Earl Washington is even though he was 22 years old, he had the IQ of a 10-year-old. And so because of his diminished cognitive abilities, while he's being questioned, he confessed to committing the crime. And even though there was clearly some coercion that had gone on between the police officers and trying to get him to confess, and there was absolutely no other evidence to tie him to this crime, he was arrested, and he was charged, and brought to court, and he was found guilty. 
And his punishment was the death penalty. And so for the next nine years, Earl Washington sat on death row waiting for his day of execution. Now in those nine years, some new evidence was discovered, including DNA evidence, which was new. They didn't have that technology back in 1982. And so now there were some, some new things and some new hope for Earl Washington. But Virginia had this interesting law at the time which said that no new evidence could be presented or introduced after 21 days, which I'll be honest, sounds crazy to me. Yet, it had been nine years since he was convicted. So there's nothing that the courts could do. They couldn't, by law, look at this new evidence. And so Earl Washington's lawyers went in a different way. Instead, they appealed to the governor. And so now here you have this one man. This one man who could either preserve life or proclaim death. Now let me bring that over to our passage today. Because just like the governor could preserve life or proclaim death, our speech, and this is my big idea, our speech can either preserve life or it can proclaim death. Now if that sounds familiar, like you've heard that before, it's true, you have heard that before. In fact, there's another verse in Proverbs that is actually a great summary of the three verses I read at first, which is Proverbs 18.21, which says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now that makes it sound like our words carry a lot of weight. And it should, because our words do carry a lot of weight. In fact, as we were preparing for this series on wisdom, and we were talking about all the various subjects and topics that we could talk about, speech is the one that came up the most in Proverbs. The Bible has a lot to say about our speech. God cares a lot about the way in which we talk. And so if our speech is that important, and if our speech can truly preserve life or can proclaim death, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how do I know if what I'm speaking is wisdom that preserves life, or am I just speaking in the same way in which the world does? This morning we want to answer that question, and we're going to discuss three ways in which we can know that we are speaking with wisdom in order to preserve life. So let's start with the first one. The first point, the first way is why speech promotes justice. Verse 17 again says, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. We all know that Proverbs is written by King Solomon. We probably all know that King Solomon is considered the wisest man who has ever lived. And King Solomon got his wisdom directly from God. Early in King Solomon's reign, the Lord had come to him and said, Solomon, you can ask me for anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon could have asked for riches or for power or for asked for, you know, a million wishes, whatever it is he wanted to ask for. But in his humility, understanding the great responsibility that King Solomon had, he asked for wisdom, the wisdom to lead God's chosen people. Now, the framework in which Solomon had to lead his people was under the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses for the Israelite people as they were wandering in the wilderness after they had been delivered from Egypt on Mount Sinai. 
And in the Mosaic Law, there's a whole bunch of commands and rules that the people have to follow. And those commands and rules, if you break them, they have consequences. There was punishments for doing that. And some of them seem really harsh. They seem really over the top. And some of them include things like death or banishment from the community. So if a person, an Israelite person, murdered someone, then the consequence was death. If an Israelite person cursed their mother or father, now the teenagers in here need to pay attention to this. If they cursed their mother and father, the punishment was death. If they committed blasphemy and said something negative about the Lord or minimized his name or elevated themselves up to the level of the Lord, if they committed blasphemy, the punishment was death. And if they committed sexual sin, the Bible says that they were to be removed from the people or in some case, put to death. Now, in order for any of these super, you know, these super serious charges to be brought against a person, there had to be witnesses. And so it was really important that the witnesses were truthful. Because quite literally, the life of the accused person was in the hands of the witnesses. In fact, truthful witnesses were so important that when God gave the law, in his summary of the law, which we call the Ten Commandments, he included this in that summary. Exodus 20.16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, usually when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, we usually say here, you shall not lie. And you shall not lie is part of this. But it goes deeper than that. Because what this is talking about is, is sort of the hinge of, of justice when it comes to the law. If you don't have truthful witnesses, then either you're going to have innocent people who are going to be found guilty and potentially could be put to death, or you're going to have guilty people who are found innocent, and that's going to damage and that's going to hurt the community. Either way, what you have going on here is a perversion of justice. And so God demands truthful witnesses. And the thing about a truthful witness is that they are others' focus. A truthful witness wants to defend the truth even at great personal cost to themselves. They testify to the truth and they care about justice. And we can say a truthful witness walks in the way of wisdom. On the other hand, a false witness walks in the way of the world. A false witness is self-focused. They lie about the things that they've seen and the things they've experienced for their own self-gain. We see a perfect example of this when Jesus is arrested. For years, the religious leaders have wanted to arrest Jesus. They feel threatened by him because he, he threatens their power and their control over the people. And so when they finally find their moment, their opportunity to arrest Jesus, they grab him in the middle of the night and they bring him before Caiaphas, the high priest, and they want to bring charges against Jesus except for one thing. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus is sinless. And so they can't bring proper charges against him. So it says that they found other people to come. And those other people brought, brought false testimony against Jesus so that they may put him to death. See, what the religious leaders wanted to do is they wanted to remove Jesus for their own selfish gain. 
Now, so far, what we've been talking about is sort of courtroom settings, and you might be thinking, wait a minute, what does this have to do with me? Because I'm not spending a whole lot of time in a courtroom. I've never really been a witness in something like that. I've never even really been on a journey or jury. So how does this connect to me? But what I want to say is the principle of promoting justice at the heart is the judgments we make about people all the time. When we think about the way that the world judges people and the standards that they set. See, the world will look at people in the clothes that they wear and make judgments about them. Or the car that they drive, or the location of where they live, or whether they rent or they own. People make judgments based on whether you homeschool your kids, or you send them to public school, or you dare to pay for them to go to private school. They make judgments based on the church you go to, or the country you're from, or the state you just moved here from, your education level, your ethnicity, and your race. And what will happen is a person will take all that information and they'll make assessments about the person. And I'm not talking about assessments like, oh, that's a homeowner, or that person's a Lutheran, or that person's from Germany. The kind of assessments I'm talking about are the assessments where they're, they're judging someone's character or their capabilities. See, from their limited perspective, they look at the outside of the person, the thing that they can only observe. And based on what they see, they make a judgment about what's going on in here, what's happening in the person's heart and who they are. And after they make that assessment, what they do is they go and they share it with other people. And at that, person, at that point, they become a gossip, but not just a gossip, they become a false witness. Because now they're lying about what they've seen. They're lying about that person for their own self-gain. And we all know what it's like to be judged this way. We all know what it's like to hear words that aren't true. When people share lies about us or half-truths or they're gossiping behind our back. And when you find out about those things, when you hear those words, that never feels like those are words that are preserving life. Those always feel like words that are proclaiming death. Proverbs 14.25 says, a truthful witness saves lives. And it's true, a, proof, a truthful witness can physically save someone's life, especially when it comes to the court of law. But what I'm trying to say here this morning is a truthful witness, someone who makes an honest assessment about someone, someone who speaks the truth about someone, what they can do, they can save someone else's life as well. But it may be their, their emotional life or their mental life or their spiritual life. And that's just as important. It is just as needed. The second way that our speech can preserve life is wise speech produces healing. Verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Sticks and stones may break my bones. How does that end? But words may never hurt me, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. I remember as a kid having my parents or another adult say that to me, and I understand the intention behind it. You know, as a child, you've got a friend who's just rejected you, or you've been called a name, or you've been ridiculed, and you're heartbroken, and you're crying, and you're weeping, and, 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 and a parent or an adult comes to you, and they want to make it better. They want to take away the pain. And so what they do is they minimize the effect of the words on you. Now, I've never broken a bone. 
I'm almost 47 years old, never broken a bone. Praise the Lord for that. Now, I have been hit by sticks, and I've been hit by stones, and it hurts. Actually, they hurt a lot. And I don't want to ever minimize anybody's physical pain. But to say that words don't hurt, I don't know if there's a greater lie than my parents ever told me in my entire life than that. Because they do. They do hurt. When Solomon is writing this, he uses, he says our, the words can be like sword thrusts. When you think about a sword, we all know what a sword is. We all know what a sword is designed to do. It's a weapon. It's meant to inflict pain. It's meant to hurt. It's meant to kill. And he calls them sword thrusts. And when you think about what a thrust is, a thrust is purposeful. It is meant to inflict maximum damage. It's meant to hurt and cause severe pain. As I looked at, at, the, at the words um, in the original languages for, for sword thrust, what it said is that it was to stab or pierce with a strong bow, blow. It's meant to be hurtful. What the Bible is saying here is that our words can be devastating. They can damage us. They can hurt us. When Solomon writes this, the words that he's talking about, he calls them rash words. Another word we could say is they're reckless words. In other words, we might say it's, it's speaking before you think. There's a lot of reasons why we might speak before we think. There's a lot of reasons why we do that, but there's two that I want to highlight this morning. The first is we speak before we think because of un- uncontrollable anger. Maybe you've spoken this way to someone or someone has spoken to you this way. There's someone who speaks in a way that they want to wound you. Usually they're doing this as a result of their own pain or their own woundedness, the things that they've experienced, maybe their own disappointment or unmet expectations. And in their anger and their frustration and their disappointment, they say words that are meant to hurt. They're not calm. The words are not thought through. The person exhibits little control. The words are harsh and violent. It's stuff like, I hate you, and you're such a disappointment. Things that cut to the heart, that tear you down. Another way that we speak before we think is through unfiltered sarcasm. Now, the intent of sarcasm is different than the intent of uncontrollable anger. The intent of of sarcasm is to be humorous or or to lighten the mood. And if it's done well, if it's done appropriately, sarcasm can do that. I'm not going to say that all sarcasm is bad. Sometimes it does do exactly what it's meant to do. It does lighten the mood. Sometimes it does help. But when it's unfiltered, when it's just off the cuff, when there's no thought to it at all, when it's just a quick reaction to what you've seen or what you've heard, even though it seems humorous to you and in your mind for that split second it seems to make sense, and maybe even your buddies around you laugh at it, But the person, the object of the sarcasm, sometimes it cuts to their heart too. Because the truth is, often when we're being sarcastic, there's a hint of truth to it. And the person, the object of the sarcasm, knows it. They can sense it. That there's something behind what you're saying, and that truth pierces them. Gets right down to where their heart is. I'm going to be honest, this is my struggle. When we were talking about these different topics that we, that we go over in the way of wisdom, and, I, and, and speech ended up being mine, I thought, you know what, I'm probably fine here. 
I'm probably good. I don't really say things that hurt people that often. I feel like I'm pretty responsible with, with the things I say. I don't scream at people. I don't yell at people. I'm, I'm a pretty calm guy. I'm pretty measured. And then I remembered this. I remembered sarcasm. Because sarcasm is my default position. Especially in times where I'm uncomfortable. When things are awkward. What I want to do is I want to make it humorous. And so I speak with sarcasm. In fact, I do it so much that at times I've joked that my spiritual gift is sarcasm. But the problem with that is this, is that spiritual gifts are meant to build up the church. (laughs) And my sarcasm doesn't usually do that. So it's probably inappropriate that I call it my spiritual gift. But the thing is that the world says that all this is okay. The world will say, you know what, speaking out in anger is is good, it's okay. Or using sarcasm without care about how it affects other people, it's okay. In fact, it's sometimes justified, and even sometimes it's even necessary. I mean, look at social media. Look at the way that people talk to one another. Look at the increase in things like road rage, where someone makes a mistake and maybe they cut you off and they don't do it on purpose, but people drive after them and they get out of their cars and they come up to their window and they scream at them as if they had just killed their child. Well, look at what we see when it comes to rallies that happen all over the country and the way that people scream and yell at each other, completely uncontrollable, treating each other as though they're enemies. However, the Bible doesn't describe why speaking in the same way. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In times when my emotions are getting the best of me or in times where I really think I've got a great witty response to something that someone has said, if in that moment I can be wise enough to bite my tongue, it always turns out for the best. I never regret that. I never get to this place where I'm like, you know what I should have done there is I should have screamed my head off at that person. Or you know what would have been great in that moment is that witty joke I had that was going to put them down. Like I never think that. I always think, you know what, that was probably the best thing I could have done. And if I'm going to be honest, when I'm really wise and I bite my tongue, usually what happens is I don't say anything at all. What I want to do in that moment is I want to silently ask myself a question, a couple questions, and one of them is this. Is what I'm about to say, is this going to help? Is this going to help the person or help the situation, or is it just going to hurt them? The second question I want to ask myself is, what I'm about to say, is this for them or is this for me? Because if I look at verse 18, and Solomon says, the tongue of the wise brings healing, what I have to understand is, What it's not saying is the the tongue of the wise does not bring hurt or self-gratification. And so those are things that I have to wrestle with. Now, speaking in a way that brings healing is the opposite of rash or reckless words. Healing words are thoughtful and purposeful. Healing words can, can help heal people who are hurt or disappointed or even angry. You know, we live lives that are filled with mistakes and failures and rejections. And the world looks at our failures and they make judgments about us and they question our character because we made a mistake. But how healing is it when there's someone around you 
Someone who stands with you no matter what mistakes or failures you make. And they say things like, you know what? I still love you. You know what? I'm proud of you. I forgive you. Those things soften your heart. They help to bring about reconciliation and they begin the healing process. And in those moments when you're at your lowest, it's those sorts of words, those healing words that you hold on to when there's nothing left to hold on to. In the movie Goodwill Hunting, it's a movie about a young man in his early 20s. He's a genius, but he's had a really difficult life. He's grown up in and out of foster care where he's experienced a lot of physical abuse. And as a result of his difficult childhood, he's now gotten into some trouble with the law. And this last time he's arrested, the judge orders mandatory counseling. And so he's set up with a counselor by the name of Sean who has a similar background to this young man by the name of Will. And as they're meeting, over time, Will starts to trust Sean a little bit more and starts to come out of his shell a little bit and starts to share some of the things that he's gone through. And as they meet over and over and over again, and there starts to be some breakthroughs, Sean is now going to put together a file that he's going to turn back into the judge before he signs off on the end of the counseling. And so Sean and Will are meeting together, and Sean's got this file in his hand, and in the file is pictures of the abuse that Will has undergone, pictures of the scars. It also has documents that talks about the abandonment and the attachment issues that Will is now dealing with. And Sean holds up the file. And he says, you know, I don't know much. But what I do know is that everything in here, it's not your fault. And Will, who's built up a tough exterior and a wall in order to protect himself, says, I know. And Sean says, it's not your fault. Again, Will says, no, I know. And Sean, who knows Will intimately, says, no, no, you don't. It's not your fault. And Will starts to crack. There's a crack in the wall as Sean's words start to pierce his heart. And Will breaks, and he falls into Sean's arms in an embrace, and Will just keeps on saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And Sean keeps on repeating, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. You see, over months of the two of these men meeting, there was times where Will was letting Sean down, where he wasn't making the progress that, that Sean was hoping that he would make. And Sean certainly could have said, look at that, Will, you screwed up again. You're still a disappointment. You need to get over it. He could have said those things. But Sean knew. That's not what Will needed to hear. What Will needed to hear were words that were healing. Sean was probably put out. He was probably frustrated. But he knew that this was not about him this was about Will. And in that moment, what Will needed to hear more than anything else was, it's not your fault. Healing words preserve life. A third way that wise speech can preserve life is that wise speech professes the truth in a believer's heart. Now, I changed that from what's written in your notes 
I had an epiphany this morning, so you might have to cross that out a little bit. I feel like this is a better uh, representation of what we find here. So, so I'll say it again. Wise speech professes the truth in a believer's heart. Verse 19 says, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. You know, there's two different ways that we can interpret this verse. The first way we can interpret it is that truth lasts forever and that lies are temporary. And that's certainly true. It's 100% true. That there's going to become a time, there's going to come a time where Jesus is going to return and he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth and all lies are going to be gone and there's going to be nothing but truth that is left. And we'll live in a place where the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There'll be no more falsehoods and what will be left is the truth. The truth about you and the truth about me, and the truth about Jesus, and what he has done. And we can interpret it that way, and we can certainly hold on to the truth of that, and we should. But when I read this verse, and it talks about truthful lips, and it talks about a lying tongue, I see lips and tongue as a representative of the whole, of the whole person. And so if I read it that way, then the way I would interpret this, and the way that the Net Bible has translated it, which says... The one who tells the truth will endure forever, but the one who lies will last only for a moment. See, what we say reveals our future direction, and what we say reveals the condition of our heart. I'm going to take a look at Matthew chapter 12, because I think this represents this well. We'll start in verse 33. It says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, that sounds super scary. It frightens me a little bit. And I guess it should sound scary, but that really depends on who you are. If you're someone who follows Christ, this doesn't have to be scary words. Because what this is calling for, what Jesus is saying, and what Proverbs 12 is saying is it's not saying, listen, you have to live in perfection. Everything you say has to be exactly right. And if you ever tell a lie, you know what? Then you're just going to last for a moment and you're going to be condemned. That's not what Jesus is saying because that would contradict everything else we read in Scripture. For certainly Romans 8 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here and what Proverbs is communicating to us is this. Is that what you speak comes out of the abundance of your heart. In other words, we profess what is already here. A heart that's filled with Jesus speaks the truth. A heart that's filled with Jesus speaks the truth of the gospel. About who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what that means for you. What that means for me and how that transforms the whole world. And that truth that they speak about the gospel extends into all other areas of the life. Because people who are filled with Jesus speak the truth. 
That's just what they do. They can't help it because that is what their heart is filled with. And they speak what is there. A person whose heart is filled with anything else speaks in the same manner in which the world speaks. That heart can't help it either. They can only speak what they know. They can only speak what is in their heart. And the problem with speaking according to the wisdom of the world is, as Monty talked about when he opened up this series from Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. See, someone in love with Jesus who has eternal life that is the source of their truthful lips. But someone in love with the world has eternal death. And that is the source of their lying tongue. At the beginning of this message, I told the story about Earl Washington. But I sort of left a cliffhanger there because you didn't know what the governor was going to do. And I'm happy to say that the governor had the ability to either preserve life or proclaim death, he chose to preserve life. He commuted Earl Washington's sentence so that he was no longer on death row. And that gave his lawyers the time to continue to work on his case. And it gave the law the time to catch up and remove that silly 21-day thing. And so that if several years later, Earl Washington was released from prison and the right person was arrested and charged with the crime. What kind of people are we? How are we going to use our speech? Are we going to use our speech to preserve life? Are we going to use our speech to proclaim death? Are we going to use our speech in a way that mirrors biblical wisdom? Are we going to use our speech in a way that mirrors worldly wisdom? So what are we going to do? This morning, I want to give you some time to reflect for a couple minutes. I want you to reflect on who you are. In order to know where you're going to go, you have to know where you are right now. So I want you to reflect, are, are you the kind of person who with their speech promotes justice? Someone who tells the truth about other people, or are you someone who makes unfair judgments and shares those things with other people? Are you the kind of person who uses their speech to produce healing? Or do you use your speech to tear people down? Now, I want us all to reflect on this and to think about it and to go to the Lord before, to go before the Lord and ask him as well. But I really don't want it to stop there because we can reflect on these things and then be happy with what we've done after two minutes and we can walk out of here and not think about it again. But I remember several weeks ago when Jeff was preaching and talking about husbands and wives. And if you remember, he gave us all a challenge, those of us who are married, that during the upcoming week, he wanted spouses to go to their spouse and ask them to give feedback on how they were doing. If it was a husband, were they really loving their wife as Christ loved the church? And if it was a wife, was she honoring and respecting and submitting to her husband and to allow their spouse to speak into that? And so I want to give you time to reflect this morning, but I also want to encourage you, strongly encourage you, to find someone this week Someone who knows you, someone you trust. And ask them how they receive your speech. Ask them how they hear your words. Is it building them up or is it tearing them down? 
Now, before I go, there's one last thing. Because as I've been giving you instructions on what to reflect on, I only talked about my first two points. But I want to bring this up about my last point, which is wise speech professes what's in a believer's heart. When you're reflecting here for the next couple minutes, and you're thinking about what your speech reveals about your heart, if you realize that what's in there is not what you want to be in there, I want to plead with you and tell you not to ignore that. It may be that you're a believer, that you've turned in faith to Jesus, but there's a disconnect between your professed faith and what's going on in here. And you don't want to leave that alone. You want to get that out. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to talk to someone about that today. We've got pastors here. We've got staff members here. We have other leaders in this church. In fact, most of the people in this church would love to have a conversation about where your heart is right now and to talk with you and to pray with you. But it could be that what you're seeing in your heart and what that's revealing is that you've actually never turned in faith to Jesus ever. Maybe you've even been coming to church your entire life. And yet this is not filled with him. And I don't want you to ignore that either. And if that is you today, please come and talk to me. Pastor Monty or Pastor Jeff or anybody else on the staff, we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you. And perhaps today would be the day that your life changes tremendously. All right, so let's take a couple minutes and let's reflect. grateful for your word because your word tells us that uh, 
heart change by your indwelling and your spirit's work in us produces what the change that comes out of our mouth. And so we're grateful for that reminder. Uh, we all need to grow in this area. It's such a crucial area. And so, Lord, I pray you would, with your spirit, convict us and then teach us and help us to speak to one another as you intended. We ask that in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.